This sermon series in Job began in August, and here we are in late November uh, finishing this series. Now, while a quick review on the ground we've covered in this book doesn't do justice to the book that we've studied for many months, but a quick review will help those of you who are maybe hearing this story for the first time in a while. First, I would like to highlight something that was stated at the very beginning of this message series. It's important to note and to observe and to point out the book of Job is a very long book. As you look at all the books of Scripture, 42 chapters is a lot of material. And I think there is a good reason for that. I think there is purpose in why the book of Job is as long as it is. My sense is that the length of Job, the pace of Job, the slow pace, and the complexity of this book is intended to mirror our own experience of suffering. Suffering is not something that is easily explained, and deep pain is not something that we quickly overcome. And the length and nature of the book of Job reflects that. Biblical commentator Christopher Ashe gives a similar reason for the length of this book when he writes, Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, there can be no message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a 42 chapter journey with no satisfactory bypass. So here I'm trying to give you a satisfactory bypass. I'm trying to give you Job in a nutshell this morning. Accordingly, if you're unduly alarmed or unsettled by anything I say in this quick summary, my only urge for you is, is to hear some of the other sermons online, or even better yet, read all 42 chapters of Job for yourself, because I won't do justice with this summary. Nevertheless, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. We'll move quickly. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we look at this and we see Job's a good man. Job is a great man. Job is influential. He is wealthy. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see Job is described as the greatest of all of the people in the East. So Job is, is he's, he's one of your world famous characters, but he's not world famous uh, just because he's popular. Or uh, In our day, we tend to revere professional athletes and professional actors. Job is revered because he's morally upright. He's revered because he is God-fearing. But then the story of Job takes a turn when Satan presents himself to God. And while God highlights to Satan how upright Job is, you might even say God boasts before Satan how God-fearing Job is. Satan has the audacity to argue with God. 
Satan counters by asserting, well, the only reason Job is this good man is because you've put a hedge of protection around him. And if you were to remove God, this hedge of protection, then Job would curse you. So Satan asked God for permission. He wants permission to put Job's fidelity to the Lord to the test. And amazingly, God obliges. God takes the challenge from Satan and he says, Okay, you can run him through the ringer, if you will. You can test him, but you cannot touch Job directly. That's the one limitation God put on this. What follows in this book is nothing short of horrifying what Job experiences. Job was a wealthy man, and all of his wealth is confiscated. Job employs many, many servants. Most of them are killed. Job has ten children, seven sons, and three daughters, and all ten of his children are killed in a single incident. And then the reader of Job braces to see what his response will be. Will he curse God as Satan suggested he would? What will Job do in response to all that he has lost? Well, we're told initially Job tears his robe and he shaves his head. And I I know that sounds strange to the modern ear, but it seems that in Job's day, this was a conventional way to mourn. You would tear your clothes and you'd shave your head because you were trying to make your physical appearance mirror how you felt on the inside. But then Job says this in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Many of you know that verse in the King James. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now Satan didn't pass the test. He didn't get the outcome that he was looking for. He thought that Job would curse God, but Job blessed God. So Job, sir, Satan has the audacity to circle back to God a second time. But now he wants permission to touch Job directly. Satan insists that if he's able to gain direct access to harming Job, then Job would curse God. And again, amazingly, God gives permission. He obliges the request, only requiring that Satan not take Job's life. So we read in chapter 2, verse 7, that Job is struck with what are described as loathsome sores. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. At this point, Job's wife wants to know why he isn't cursing God. They've lost all their children. They've lost all their possessions. Job's covered in these loathsome sores. Job's wife wants to know, why aren't you cursing God? Job replies, shall we receive good from God? 
and not trouble? Shall we receive good from God and not trouble? You see, Job's faith in the Lord holds up remarkably well, given all that he has been through and given all that he has lost. But as the book moves forward, we begin to see Job's grief intensify. At the end of chapter 2, Job is pictured with torn clothes, a shaved head. He's pictured sitting on the ground in a pile of ashes. We are told that he's taken a broken piece of pottery and he is scratching all of the sores on his body. It's a miserable, miserable scene. Job then is joined by some friends who at first say nothing to Job, for they observed that his suffering was very great. And I think we relate to this. When you engage someone who is in an immense amount of pain and anguish, I think many of us have understood the best instinct is to say nothing and to just sit with them. And that's what his friends initially did. But after a week of silence, and a week of anguish, Job could no longer contain himself. And so Job chapter 3 details for us what I would call an uncensored, unfiltered outburst by Job, which even includes him cursing the hour of his birth. In this outburst, Job doesn't challenge God directly, but he does seem to challenge God's governance of things. He does seem to imply that God hasn't done things in a proper way. And that outburst precipitated a debate between Job and his friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar didn't take well Job's assessment of things. And so they begin to challenge Job. And so what you have is chapters 4 through 30 give us a cycle of conversations where Job's friends each in their own turn give their theory for why Job is suffering in the way he has. And Job replies to each in turn. Well, you, for the sake of summarizing this, you could say that what Job's friends believed was this. They believed Job must have done something to deserve this. That Job must not, in spite of all the appearances, in spite of his sparkling reputation, his friends have come to the conclusion that Job must have some secret sin. He must have done something or his children must have done something to deserve the disaster that fell on them. Well, what we see in Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is a worldview that's very similar to what I find in 21st century. And it goes this way. It's a worldview that says good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That was the worldview that Job's companions had and it's the worldview that, that I observe in this world, in this day, all the time. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar didn't have a category within their worldview to help them explain how a God-fearing person could suffer in the ways that Job did. 
And so accordingly, Job's friends continue to probe for his secret sin. Now Job stands up for himself in chapter 16. He calls them miserable companions. And then in chapter 31, we have what I call the grand final defense of Job. It's a defense against his companions who've suggested that he has sinned. And it's a defense against God. In fact, using courtroom language in chapter 31, Job challenges God to appear. He summons God and demands that God give an account for himself. Now you can imagine, if if you're God, the God that's described in the Bible, you have no obligation to respond to this summons from one of your creation. God God being God is under no obligation to show up. But I think it is gracious that He does. I think it is gracious that God shows up and answers the call of Job. And what we have is in one of the longest speaking sections of God in all of Scripture, chapters 38 through 41, God speaks to Job. But what is missing in God's four-chapter lengthy reply, what is missing is something that resembles an answer to the question that Job is asking. Job simply wants to know why. Why, God, since you are all-powerful, since you are sovereign, since you control the universe, since you can do anything, why did all this happen to me? Job wants an explanation. He wants an explanation for why he is in this dreadful predicament. But in a four-chapter reply, God gives no answer. Instead of revealing to Job an answer, what God does is He reveals Himself. And this is the key to beginning to unlock the book of Job. That God, when He shows up, God, when He speaks, does not give an answer to the questions that we are asking, but He Himself is revealed. And after hearing from God directly, after hearing God speak to him, Job stops asking the question. Job stops seeking an explanation. Job no longer asks why. C.S. Lewis frames this beautifully, and maybe you've read the quote in the bulletin this morning already. C.S. Lewis always says it well. He says, I know now, Lord... Why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Job had found his answer in God. So what you have in chapter 42... In the last verses from 10 to the end of the book, you have the Lord restoring the fortunes of Job. His wealth was confiscated, now it's returned. People died, his children were killed, and the Lord gives him the same proportion, seven sons and three daughters. And we read the concluding verses, and after this, Job lived 140 years, 
and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So we've come to the end of the book of Job. We've come to the end of this 42 chapter journey and we ask the question, what does the book of Job teach us? What is our take home from this? Well, perhaps let's begin with the most obvious. Job teaches us how to suffer in a God-honoring way. Job teaches us how to suffer in a God-honoring way. Where others have cursed God, where others have left the faith altogether, Job continues to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Job's initial response to the news continues to be one of the most well-known verses in the entire Old Testament. And it has become one of the popular contemporary songs of our day. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But the whole phrase is the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. More specifically, and this is important for someone like me who lacks patience. And even lacks patience at times with God. Job teaches us the value of waiting upon the Lord and not giving up. Job teaches us the value of waiting upon the Lord and not giving up. Would it surprise you to hear me say that there are prayers I have been uttering to God for more than two decades. For which I have not received the answer I was looking for. Nor have I been given an indication that I'm praying for the wrong thing. But for two decades, there are a handful of prayers that I've uttered on a very regular basis. I'm tempted to give up until I come to the book of Job and I remember the value of hanging in there. The value of waiting upon the Lord. The value of not, never giving up. Think through how this story could have gone. If Job's faith comes off the rails then this story ends differently. If Job walks away from the Lord, this story ends differently. But thankfully, for his benefit and for ours, Job hangs in there long enough to have one of the most most powerful encounters with God recorded in Scripture. It is true that Job teaches us how to suffer well. And it's true that Job teaches us how to be patient in suffering. But I do not regard these to be the primary lessons from the book of Job. So if if you go home today or you go to lunch and you go to dinner and someone says, Well, what did you hear the preacher say in church? Don't say to them that the primary lesson I learned from Job is how to wait upon the Lord or or, or how to uh, suffer in a God-honoring way. These are not the primary, these are not the most important things we learn from Job. I've given you the most obvious two, but not the most important. While it is important that we see how Job suffers well and waits upon the Lord, I want to lead you to the primary value of this book. And before I do that, I want to set it up with a quote by a Christian philosopher by the name of Peter Kreeft. Peter Kreeft says something that I resonate with. He says, Job is a mystery. And a mystery satisfies something in us. 
but not our reason. The rationalist is repelled by the book of Job, as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by the book of Job. But something deeper in us is satisfied by Job and is nourished, and it puts iron in our blood. I don't know about you, but my experience with Job resonates with that quote. Well, what is it about Job that is so deeply satisfying? Part of it, I'm sure, has to do with the ultimate vindication of Job and the restoration of his fortunes. But more than that, this is what I think it is. What is so satisfying about the story of Job is that it prepares us for the story of Jesus. That when we read and study and meditate upon Job, the gospel comes into greater focus for us. We have a greater understanding of what is taking place. Like every single book in the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Job foreshadows the person and the experiences of Jesus Christ. Again, Christopher Ashe puts it well. He says, Job is conspicuously great. Job is exceptionally upright and he is definitively righteous. Job in his extremeness foreshadows Jesus in his uniqueness. We've also noted that Job's suffering is extreme. His righteousness is extreme, but his suffering is extreme. And in, a, in the world that Job lived, greatness and suffering do not belong together. That's not the prevailing worldview. Not then and not now. Greatness and suffering do not belong together. So no one expects a person who is so definitively righteous to suffer so terribly. If God is sovereign, if God can control outcomes, we expect good things to happen to good people and bad things to happen to bad people. But yet at the heart of human history is this account of Jesus, where the most righteous person who ever lived suffers terribly. Although Jesus' accusers could find no wrong to prove against him, the rulers of his day crucified Jesus. Jesus, the greatest man to ever live, suffers terribly and is killed. And if we're honest, that counters conventional wisdom. If you have that worldview, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, you will struggle to understand the gospel and you will be surprised by suffering. This is what the Apostle Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Do you see that? We've got this prevailing worldview. This prevailing wisdom. And Paul says the wisdom of God doesn't work the way worldly wisdom does. Don't go the way the world is in thinking good things happen to good people. Don't imagine karma is true. 
Because the Bible tells a different story. The suffering of Job, the greatest man in the land, is intended to prepare us for the suffering of Jesus, the greatest man in history. I would also suggest that the vindication of Job foreshadows, at least in a small way, the vindication of Jesus. And yes, the fortunes that are restored to Job are temporary, his family, his wealth, his influence, and so on. But the hugely relevant point is this. The sovereign God of the universe has the power and capacity to work everything out for good in the end. See, we hear people say, it'll all be fine in the end. It'll all work together for good. Everything will be fine eventually. And we question that. But the book of Job and the gospel of Jesus Christ affirm it. God has the power to take the worst situations and work them for good. Paul writes about this. He says, because of what Christ has done on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Job's vindication prepares us for Jesus' vindication. Job's vindication prepares us for Jesus' vindication. And this is huge. Jesus' vindication secures your vindication. If Jesus isn't vindicated, we're not vindicated. If Jesus isn't vindicated, the dead are lost. And we're still in our sins. But because Job was vindicated, it foreshadows Jesus being vindicated. And His vindication secures ours. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is your Lord, it is my great privilege to declare to you this morning, suffering will not get the final word in your life. And it is not trite or flippant in this context for me to say to you, Everything will be alright in the end. Everything will eventually work out. A day of vindication awaits you and awaits me. An eternity of blessing and glory lies ahead. We're told that the Lord gave Job Twice as much as he had before. I'm unable to calculate how much better it will be for us in heaven. But my sense is it will be at least a billion times more than twice as much. And John assures us of this. When he promises that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain. For the former things 
will all pass away. The story of Job startles us. It startles me and makes us see how vulnerable we are to suffering during our earthly life. But the story of Job also assures us. It gives us confidence that God really is in control and that God will make everything right in the end. The answer that you seek will not come in the form of any explanation. God is your answer. God is the answer. And this is the primary message of the book of Job. Amen.